This morning we come into the second installment in what I'm calling a single sermon delivered in seven parts. The name of the sermon is Troubled by Tulip, the Glorious Truth of God's Salvation. Now in it, we started last Sunday night, in it we are looking at our marvelous gospel, our amazing, tremendous gospel, and we're looking at a teaching called Calvinism or Reformed Theology, or some now call it Doctrines of Grace. Now, I want to say up front, I believe this is a necessary series. I believe, and I know it is a timely series, and I believe it is a vitally important series because of what is happening in the church in these days just before Jesus comes again. The things that are happening, the things that are going on, I believe this is a necessary series of sermons. I believe these teachings right now with great momentum are actually changing the message of the church. I believe they are changing the mission of the church. I believe they are stealing away the urgency of the church. Now, that's terrible enough, but more than all of that, I believe these teachings actually mar the character of the Savior of the church, Jesus Christ. With certainty, I believe these are false teachings that are destructive and dangerous in our day today. Therefore, I am preaching on them. Now, that said, I want to be sure and clarify again. I also believe most of the proponents of these teachings are believers. I believe they love God's Word. I believe they love Christ. They want Christ to be known and to be glorified. However, I believe they have been misled, many of them overrun and inundated with these teachings. And so we move forward in our study this morning. We begin last Sunday night with a message entitled, Guilty by Choice. Guilty by Choice. This morning our message is entitled, No Room in the End. No Room in the End. Our verses, our focal verses are Romans chapter 10. Today, verses 8 through 13. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. No room in the end. I'm going to ask if you would, if you'd stand with me in the honor and the reverence of the reading of God's word. <coughs> Romans chapter 10, beginning in the 8th verse, God's word says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Great Father, we come. We're thankful for this day. We're thankful for a day that you have made, a day that we can gather as the church, that we can rejoice in Christian fellowship, singing your praises looking for the day that the, the king will come. And Lord, I pray that until then that we are taught by your word, that we are 
trained by your word. Lord, I pray that now as we begin to study it, to dive into it, I pray, Lord, that you would speak, that you would lead, that it would be in great humility that we are trained and taught and equipped to stand as believers in the days before you come. Lord, we come and we tell you we're thankful that we have hope today in Jesus, that we have provision made for us as sinners in the person of Jesus. We're thankful that we have a Savior in our Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that your name is held high today, that your banner is waved again today in a, in a place that it brings much glory to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, we're in a pretty deep endeavor. Sunday night, I explained those holding the belief set that we are looking at use the acrostic TULIP to explain their beliefs. Now, there are five points. Uh, those are called the five points of Calvinism. Uh, each of those are represented or are explained in the word TULIP. Now, I'll just tell you, there are some that hold these beliefs that say, well, they do not hold to all five points. Some will say, well, I am a four-point Calvinist. I'm not five, I'm four. Others will say, maybe they are three. One of them is very unpopular, and so they want to distance themselves from it, saying they're a four-point or a three-point. We're already seeing, however, now I want you to see this, all of them are tied together. And really, we start to find that all of them build upon the previous one. And so really, if they are a three-point or a four-point, really they hold all five of these in common. Now, the five points are this, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Sunday night, we looked at total depravity. It's sometimes called total inability. It is the idea that because of the fall, mankind, people, have no ability. They have an inability to seek God or to turn to God. As part of that, one of the implications are, is that people are considered guilty of the sin of Adam. Now, you can go back. Uh, that sermon is online. You can go back and, and, and listen to that, watch that, and see that message. It is the foundation of their belief set. That first step is really the foundational place that they begin with. Well, today we're going to move to the second part, the you in the tulip. It is unconditional election, unconditional election. Sometimes it is known as sovereign election. Sometimes it is known as the doctrine of predestination. Maybe you've heard that called that as well. Unconditional election holds God elects people to salvation by his own sovereign choice and not because of any distinction or merit in them. Those who come to Christ do so at his will and not by their will. That's where total inability begins to tie in. Now what it means is only those chosen by God before a single act of creation, before the world's ever formed, only those chosen by God will be saved. The election part talks about 
Those that are saved are chosen by God. They are elected by God. The unconditional part means it's not earned. It is not deserved. It is not based on any distinction that we can see or that we can perceive. It is unconditional. God chooses before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. They will be saved. No, no, no bias, no, no thing that we can discern, a reason unconditionally God chooses before the foundation of the world those who will be saved. Now those that follow this teaching, they believe that it showcases the glory of God. And so they come to this, this teaching and they say, well, this shows you man has no part of salvation. Even the faith response, it is dependent upon God. And so they believe this teaching showcases the glory of God. They also believe that it showcases the grace of God. They think this teaching, well, you know what? It shows how gracious our God is. God saves based upon himself. It's not of any distinction of a person. It is God's grace. That's why it has the name, the doctrines of grace. Now, it's a complicated maneuver, but they come to this understanding from several places in Scripture. Now, I believe there's a lot of extra biblical input as well to their belief set, but they come to this from several places in Scripture. However, it is based predominantly on Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. I will tell you it is based predominantly on a faulty understanding of Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now, let me just say this. We could spend weeks on those chapters. We could go through the whole book of Romans. We ought to. We could look at the whole thing to gain the context of those chapters. We ought to. We could look at those three chapters. We could spend months on them, each word's meaning. However, that is not my intent. I will say from the context, now listen, that's how we interpret Scripture. We can't lift verses out. We have to take them in their context. I will say in context, Romans chapter 9 through 11 is not talking about the individual which is what they're supposing. It's talking about the nation. It's talking about Israel. It's talking about the Gentiles. I will tell you, I believe it's not talking about salvation. That's what they think it's talking about, that it's talking about individual salvation. It's not talking about salvation. Rather, it is talking about service. It is talking about, from the context, who gets to carry the Word of God. The, the Israelites, they were a people that the Word of God came from, that the teachings and the truths of the Word of God were to be propelled from. And so they thought, well, they're going to be the, 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 the people that carry the truth of the gospel. Who gets to carry the Word of God? So it's talking about service. It's not talking about individual salvation. That's a complicated subject. I believe these chapters actually do show the true sovereignty and grace of God. If you look at those chapters, while the Jews have become stumbling blocks to the spread of the gospel, God can use only that. Now listen, they were supposed to be the ones that, that told out the gospel. They have become resistant to that. 
They have fallen into sin. But listen, only God, a sovereign God, a gracious God, can use even that. And so he takes that, and, and, and Paul says, has the word of God failed? He says, no. He takes that and uses even that so that all people would know. The Gentiles and the Jews would know. God's promise to Abraham stands because of the truth of those chapters. Deep stuff, I would encourage you to go read that, read it in context. But I want to tell you this. As we look at those chapters, once again, here's what happens. We find the good news is always good news. Now, we saw that last Sunday night. The good news, God comes up with that word. It's his word, gospel. The good news, by definition, is always good news. And so I don't care what you're looking at. If you're looking into the true gospel, as you see the gospel, it is always good news. If you look at Romans 9, 10, and 11, it's not bad news. It is still good news. <clears throat> John Piper, their most popular preacher, he's carried more influence probably in this movement in the last 10 to 15 years than anybody he says this. Here's how he defines it. Before you were born or had done anything good or bad, God decided whether or not to save you. That's his definition of unconditional election. I want you to hear that again. That sums it up pretty well. Before you were born or had done anything good or bad, God decided whether or not to save you. Now, I remember from last Sunday night, we saw when you have a faulty foundation, everything else becomes jeopardized. And it's, it's pretty interesting how that becomes true always, but especially in these understandings. When the, when the foundation has a mar in it, a fault in it, everything built on that foundation is jeopardized. That's how that works. Well, when they have a faulty doctrine, they have to go and adjust wildly to account for its implications. If this is not solid, if this is not true, the things that are built on it, the things that come out of it, they have to spend a whole lot of time adjusting wildly to account for those implications. If they say these things are true, and they believe these things, other things are always impacted. Now, I can, I can say, wait a minute, God has chosen before the foundation of the earth who will be saved. And you say, well, that sounds pretty reasonable. I can go find some verses that seem to say that. What's the big deal? If you believe that, there are implications that come out of that, that come front of that. Today, very quickly... Let me show you what happens if unconditional election is true. Now go with me. <clears throat> if unconditional election is true, God chooses to save some, but not others. Now, now listen, stay with me. If unconditional election is true, God chooses to save some, 
but not others. Now, Calvinists, most of them will rear up at that, and they'll say, well, we've all earned damnation. We are all guilty. It's only God's grace that anybody is ever saved. Well, listen to me. If he chooses some to save, and the determining factor of anyone getting saved is his choice, now that's their belief, then when he's choosing some, he's not choosing others. Listen, that just makes sense. That's, that's the natural outcome. It can't be any other way around. That's the simple fact. If he is choosing some, and the reason that they're being saved, the only reason is his choice, if he is choosing some, then by default, he is not choosing others. If unconditional election is true, God chooses some to save, but not others. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. <clears throat> if God does not choose or elect some, it's really many, to be saved, to not be saved, he actually does not want all to be saved. Now, I want you to think about that. If he doesn't choose many to be saved, then he actually doesn't want all to be saved. Now, listen, with that, the consequence becomes huge. What's the consequence? The consequence with that becomes huge. If that is true, listen to this, the word of God becomes suspect. You see, God has said in 1 Timothy, God has said in 2 Peter, he wants all to be saved. That is his character that he shows us. That is his character that we love. He is patient and kind, desiring that none should perish. That is what the word of God says. And yet, if this is true, it is not lived out in practice. If unconditional election is true, the word of God is suspect. Does he say what he means? Does he do what he says? Can we trust his word? He said he desires that none should perish, and yet he doesn't choose most. If unconditional election is true, the word of God is suspect. And that leads us to the third thing. If unconditional election is true, the character of God is suspect. R.C. Sproul, he's one of their big preachers. He says this. These are his words. Take it out on him. If there is such a thing as predestination at all, and if that predestination does not include all people, talking about Calvinists, then we must not shrink back from the necessary inference that there are two sides to predestination. Let's talk about that. Follow with me. I want you to see this. I'm going to go very slow. I want you to understand this. If unconditional election is true, God creates people, and they are born guilty of sin, the sin of Adam, their own sin, whatever you want to say, they are born unable to seek him. This is, this is their belief set. 
God creates them. They are born. They are born guilty. They are born unable to seek him. Then they go and they live in the toil and the torment of sin. They, they live in sin. They suffer the consequence of sin. All the days of their life are marked by sin. And then they die in that sin. They are unchosen. They were unable to do anything about it. They die in that sin. Then they are condemned to eternal suffering for their sin. Are you listening to me this morning? If unconditional election is true, that is the design of God. And they never had any hope for anything different. Did you hear what I just said? If unconditional election is true, they are born in sin and they live in sin and they hurt and they struggle in sin and they die in their sin and they're eternally punished in their sin and there was never anything to do about it. And the Calvinists, the lovers of the doctrines of grace would graciously say, all glory be to God. Who are you, O son of man? What is the clay to say to the potter? You were born in sin and you lived in sin and you hurt in sin and you died in sin and now you're eternally punished in that sin. That is their belief. I'm going to get there. That's, I'm going to get there. That's not our God. That's not our gospel. So what's the danger? What's the danger? Here's the danger, a couple of them. First thing, it changes the message of the church. The message of the church, let me tell you what the message of the church is. It's the, it's the word of God. It's the word of God, the Bible. The message of the church is believe. The message of the gospel is believe. The message of the word of God is believe. Remember when we went through John, these things I've written that you might believe, believe. The Bible implores, believe. They say you can't. Not unless God does something to you first. You can't believe. Believe. You can't believe. Changes the mission of the church. The New Testament, the Bible is very clear. We're to go and tell. Go ye therefore into all nations. Last words of Jesus, compel, preach, persuade. Those are the words of Paul. Go to the hedgeways, to the highways, to the byways. Compel them. Bible says go and tell. They say go and tell, do it in obedience. Not going to be any different in the outcome. Won't be a change in the outcome. It changes the mission of the church. Changes the urgency of the church. The Bible says, can't you feel it? We just went through Acts. The Bible says, be urgent. The Bible says, the king is coming. Time will soon be no more. These are imperative days. The Bible says, be urgent. They say it's already decided. It's already set. Be urgent. Don't be urgent. It doesn't matter. The Bible says, be urgent. <coughs> Let me tell you what else it does. <laughs> this is going to be very unpopular. 
But here it goes. It also breeds and feeds and fosters arrogance. Now, I'm probably going to get clobbered all week for that. It breeds arrogance. Now, listen, they claim it does the opposite. And if you talk to them, they claim it does the opposite. That's why that word unconditional, it's God's grace. It's nothing that I did. Oh, I'm not worthy. They'll tell you I'm not worthy. Oh, how wretched I am. Oh, I top Paul. I'm the chief of sinners. And they'll say, oh, but for the grace of God. Oh, but grace and grace and grace. Oh, I'm such a wretch. Stay with me. You know who loves election? The elected. Do you know I've never met and I've never heard of one who believes these doctrines who doesn't think they're elect? Does that, that seem surprising to you? You know who loves election? The elect. Those that are elected, they love election. You know, I can't find one person that says this is what the Bible says that doesn't believe and praise the Lord and the grace of God. I am the elect. You remember, <laughs> maybe a ways back, you remember student council elections in junior high school? <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day. You remember those? And, and you know what they announced we're going to have a student council election and everybody gets excited and everybody thinks they can win. You ever notice that when you're about a seventh grader? And I'm going to run for president and nine kids run for president. I'm going to run for vice president. On and on. I'm going to run for secretary. There's always a couple kids that aren't confident and they say, I'm going to run for chaplain. I guess that's the easy one. There'll be 25 kids and they'll go down to the office and they'll sign the paperwork and they're excited 25 kids are going to run for four spots. They make posters. Maybe I'm talking about you. They make posters, and then they color the posters, and they put streamers on the posters, and they go make flyers, and they go somewhere bootleg to their parents' office, and they print out a whole bunch of flyers, and they get a bunch of candy, and they stick slogans on the candy, I like Mike, or win with Ben. They put a bunch of slogans on the candy, then they have an assembly. Remember that? They have an assembly and they haul all those kids in there and they stand there and they've gotten dressed up. Some of them wear costumes. They're passing out candy. They come up and they all make the exact same speech with the exact same promise. Less homework and longer recess. <laughs> That's a platform that can win. I don't know why these guys don't figure that out. I don't know how the champlain is going to pull that off, but that was even, that's what they were saying. Oh, we, if you elect me, less homework, longer recess. You go back and you vote. In sixth period, they come on the loudspeaker and they announce the results. 25 kids for four spots and oh, we've made all the posters. They announce the winners. Remember, here's how it worked. After school, you had to take down all the posters. That was part of the deal. If you run, you got to take your posters down. You ever remember going after school down the halls as the 21 kids that did not win are taking down their posters? 
pretty quiet. Kind of stings. Kind of hurts. I don't want to be chaplain anyway. Election is good for the elected. Let me give you another example. What about the homecoming queen? I'll just tell you, I, I believe this. <laughs> the biggest deal you can be in Texas is a homecoming queen. I believe that's the biggest deal. I don't know. I think it's silly, but I think you, you can be first in your class. You can make a perfect SAT, but, but if you aren't the homecoming queen, the best thing you can be in Texas is the homecoming queen. We start our girls when they're about three years old, and we show them the homecoming queen, and we walk them up there when they're six years old, and when they're nine years old, they're drawing pictures and putting them on the refrigerator of the homecoming queen. Biggest thing you can do, dream of all these girls. 85 girls in the senior class. 85 girls in the senior class. And no one says it, but it's the biggest deal ever. And, 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 and maybe they're not saying it, but they're secretly hoping. And you know what? I've been with these kids for, for 10, 11 years of school, and maybe I'm going to be the homecoming queen. Maybe I've been nice enough. Maybe i got enough friends, and they're not going to say it, but, but their secret hope is the biggest deal ever. Oh, I can come back in 30 years, and I can wave to everybody in the stands at homecoming. <laughs> biggest deal ever. There's 85 girls. And they're secretly hoping, oh, that it would be me. Oh, this, it might actually happen. And we vote and we pick six. Sixth period, I don't know why the bad news always comes in sixth period, it does. Sixth period, they break on the microphone and they tell you the names of six girls, six young ladies that are nominated for the homecoming court. There's 79 girls. They smile. But they wonder what was wrong with me. What, what was wrong with me? I thought this was my year. And they smile. And they, it's fine. They smile. I didn't want to be that anyway. That's what they all say. But it hurts and it stings. And then we go. We have the whole week. And we, we get down to the week of the big game. And it's Friday night, and they're all dressed up, and they've, they've spent money their parents didn't have for some big old dress. And now they got moms that have to come in on helicopters. <laughs> and the, the lights are on, and the flags are waving, and the horns are blowing, and it's the biggest thing you can be in Texas. Oh, there's six young ladies, and oh, they're not going to be homecoming queen. And the band is playing, and we get to the halftime show, and we walk out, and we hook arms with our dad, and we walk out in the middle of the field, and all eyes are on them. And they announce, and they pick one. And oh, it's awesome. And the flashes start to snap, and everybody starts to cheer. And there are five young ladies that stand with their dads. And they smile. And they say, it's okay. It's okay. But they're wondering, what was wrong with me? What was wrong with me? Their dad stands there with their little, his little girl, and they wonder what was, 
what's wrong with her? Friends, listen to me. Election is great if you're elected. But what if you're not? Listen to me. What if you're not? And listen, those are silly things. Those are man-made things. Those are silly things. I want you to listen to me. I want you to go with me. What if the powerful, mighty God, the loving God of all creation, the gracious God of all creation, in the beginning, God, what if the, the creator of all things, what if our God, before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born, before you ever did one good or one bad thing, based upon John Piper, what if he passed you by? What if he said, I didn't want you, you don't know the reason, but I didn't need you, and he marked by your name, unelect? What if he said, oh, I am gracious, but it won't be known to you? What if he said, oh, I am loving, but it'll never be known to you? What if he says, there's eternal joy and peace and happiness, but it's not available to you, and by your name, he marked, unelect, unwanted. Friends, can you hear me this morning? Listen to me. That is not good news. That is not our gospel. Listen to me. That is not our Savior. His truth is this. All of us have sinned. Yes, miserably so. All of us are guilty in our sin. Yes, we are all condemned in our sin. We have no hope on our own. But the good news is this. God in the offering of his salvation doesn't pass anyone by. And the good news is there's level ground at the foot of the cross. And I want you to hear, oh, dear sinner, anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Anybody can respond in faith. Anybody can be saved. Listen to me, less than that is a lie from Satan. The good news of our gracious God is this. Yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have rebelled. But his grace is greater than all our sin. And it's offered to you in the greatest act of love ever. Anyone can be saved. When we started last Sunday night, we said, well, we want our God to be God's word. So let's let it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, you listen. God's word says this. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. The word here in the original language for desires means to wish, to be willing, to purpose, to intend. God intends, he is willing, he desires all people to be saved. That's his word. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness 
but is patient toward you. This week I hear folks say, why hasn't Jesus come again? Why has he come again? Here's why he hasn't come again. He is patient toward you, not wishing, desiring, intending for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's God's testimony. That's what he says. When we started in our verses today, Romans 10, 13, therefore, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You probably know where I'm going with this. In John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The question of the gospel is not, are you elect? That's what their system comes to. Are you elect? Are you elect? Are they elect? Am I elect? The question of the gospel is not, are you elect? Some, they... They want you to prove it. And they got to watch you. This is a true story. They got to watch you to see if you're regenerate. They have to interview you. The pastor's going to interview. The elders are going to interview. Are you regenerate? Are you proving that you're the elect? You have to write it out. Can you write a testimony to convince me that you're the elect? Listen, the question of the gospel is not, are you the elect? The question of the gospel is this. Won't you come? Won't you come? There is a kind, gracious Savior, and he has made a way for you. And so the question of the, of the gospel is this. Won't you come and find peace? Won't you come and find forgiveness? Won't you come? Here's the truth. If you will come, listen to me. God will save you. I don't have to redefine anything to tell you that. If you will come, God will save you. Not based on your lineage, not based on your works, not based on your reputation. Based on his love and his grace and his power to save. So here's the question. So won't you come to Jesus? If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, won't you come today? If you're here and you're tired of toiling in your sin, hopeless, won't you come today? Won't you come to Jesus? Let's pray. During Father, we come and I praise you. I thank you. I worship you. I, I see your truth and I tell you, Lord, you are gracious to sinners. You are just. You're perfect. You're holy. You are love, and then you show us your love while we were yet sinners. Lord, we come and we just praise you, we worship you, we thank you. The gospel surely is good news. I pray as we go through this today, if there's somebody listening that doesn't know you, I pray that they respond to the good news. I pray that any hindrance will be removed to their hearing the good news. And I pray, Lord, that today will be the day of their salvation. They would turn to you in faith for your name's sake and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you've taught us today, that you've trained us today, and that we act and we stand upon your truth. We tell you we love you, 
We praise you and we thank you. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to be honest with you. Most Calvinistic churches have quit their time of invitation. You want to know how if you're in one of these, they, they quit the time of invitation. They wean it down. They call it a time of reflection. I don't know what you're reflecting on. They call it a, a time of prayer, and they eventually stop it. Well, I want to tell you, it's what we've been seeing all along. A faulty doctrine has implications other places. I want to tell you, I'd be scared of a doctrine that made me timid to call people to Jesus. You see why we exist as Calvary Baptist Church is to call people to Jesus. Why I exist as the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church is to call people to Jesus. Why you exist as a member of Calvary Baptist Church is to call people to Jesus. So I want to tell you, unashamedly today, boldly and gladly today, we give you an opportunity to come to Jesus. We're going to end our service with a time of response, a time of invitation, and it truly is the reason we've assembled today. It truly is the greatest time of our service, a time to respond to the truth of a glorious gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ, in just a few moments we're going to sing a song of invitation. You come. I'll meet you here. If you need more invitation, information, you come. I'll meet you here. If this has been a burden on your heart, you come. Let's settle it today. Come to Jesus. If you're here and you've made that decision, but you've never followed a believer's baptism, I want to tell you in obedience to Christ, to his command, as a testimony to who he is, you come. We'll set a date upon the testimony of your mouth. We'll, we'll have a great celebration pointing to Jesus and the testimony of baptism. You're here looking for a church home. You believe God's led you here. You come as well. And together we'll uphold his truth, his word, until he comes again. Maybe you want to come and pray at an altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. Maybe you're going through things we, we know, we know nobody even knows about. God says nothing's too big, nothing's too small. Maybe you want to come in humility to his altar. Maybe you want to come pray with me. I'm going to ask that no one stir about, no one head for an exit. As we stand to sing, if you have a decision to make, you step out. You come on. I'll meet you here.